It's great to have you back. I, this place is not the same when the students aren't here. I mean, a university and a seminary uh, exists for the life of the transformation and the transmission of knowledge to people like yourselves. And you bring a life back into this place, and we're uh, grateful that you came back. This is really good because it's no fun without you. Uh, the other, th- I don't know what your, your weeks have been like over the Christmas holidays. I've been in uh, Calgary, the Rockies, Edmonton, Regina, and then Phoenix. And I'm actually not sick. I just somehow have lost my voice. And uh, so we're going to croak along. And uh, we're going to see a few videos as well, which will save my voice. If uh, it's not up there, uh, but you have your phones... Uh, or an iPad or something like that, I really would like you to follow with me Isaiah 42. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I have a former colleague and a friend that used to work with me in an international development and mission organization that I headed up. And he did his doctoral work, interestingly enough, on Isaiah and the, and the servant songs of, of Isaiah and and how the implications, his doctorate was in missiology, which is the study of mission. And, and he, he, we used to always laugh whenever he did a chapel. Uh, he always would do a chapel using Isaiah in some way. And, and, and a lot of what I am uh, passing on to you today, uh, he was a mentor to me in many ways. And, and he passed on to, uh, to me. We all say we want to be more like Jesus. I sometimes wonder if we really know what that means. I actually believe that part of coming to a seminary and part of coming to a Christian university is not just the understanding that comes from the different disciplines that you're studying in, but it's also beginning to understand what the character of Jesus is like so that in the engagement in whatever field you're engaged in, uh, you will bring... Christ into that. And it's fascinating how often in the New Testament, uh, the writers of the Gospels, for instance, pick up some of these themes that, 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 draw, that are drawn out of Isaiah. I want to be more like Jesus. And that's what Isaiah 2, or 42 is all about. Uh, it's, it's about a sense of identity. I mean, he, he begins this passage with, here is my servant, whom I uphold. This radical core of the, of, of the Christian faith, which I think gets lost too often, this radical core that the way to the top is actually going down to servanthood. This radical core of, the, of discipleship that says to a, a society that says, you want to get ahead, you want to find life, you know, then grab it. And instead, this gospel that says you want to find life, well, then lose it. You want to be first, then be last. I actually think Jesus meant that, oddly enough. I don't think he was just trying to make a cute little tagline that that could be used in a marketing brochure on Jesus. I actually think he meant it. Do you want to find life? Then lose it. You want to be first, then be last. 
That is the radical core difference of the Christian faith. And then he says this, whom I uphold. This is part of our identity. This is not me alone. I've never read the book Purpose Driven Life. I should have. But I understand that it starts with um, the idea that it's not about you. I think that's the first statement in the book. That too is a critical understanding of who your identity is. It's not about you. It's about God and how he upholds you, whom I choose. And then he says, in whom I delight. Have you ever thought of that? Uh, I still remember a friend of Carla's and mine, uh, we were teaching, all teaching in Kenya. And uh, he was trying to, uh, he's, he's one of the most brilliant teachers I know. He's a master teacher. But he was trying to, he was talking about those crowds of witnesses in Hebrews 11, you know. You know, there's these crowd of witnesses. And he said, just think, they're all doing the wave. They're all watching you and doing the wave. Well, it turns out in Nairobi, people don't do the wave uh, in their stadiums. And he, so he tried to explain what the, do you all know what the wave is? Let's just try it. Let's start from here. Ooh. Oh, jeez. The people at the back are losers. You want to find life? Then learn to do the wave. Anyway, he took all the students outside. And uh, it was fascinating to watch. And, and once they got it, they really got into it. And then he stopped. And he said, just think. Jesus does that. The crowd of witnesses do that. They're cheering you on. They're holding you up. They're delighting in you. And then he says, part of your identity is spirit empowered. Ultimately, it's a description of what Jesus came to do and how. And for we who always say we wish to be more like Jesus, it's even more critical because it calls us to a task of obedience that is, that is actually wrapped up in a rooted identity. I know most of you don't come from traditions that use the revised common lectionary. But in some of our traditions, they use the lectionary. And the lectionary has four readings for every Sunday. It has a gospel reading. It has an Old Testament reading. It has a psalm. And it has a letter, an epistle. And it's, always, it's been fascinating to me to realize when I've preached on this passage before that Isaiah 42 is always linked in the common lectionary with the baptism of Jesus by John. Isn't that interesting? Obedience. Matter of fact, one of my writer friends says, how wise of the church after sappy sentimentality that inundates Christianity turns toward the talk of obedience. Before we meet the Jesus of the the compassionate healer, the wise teacher, the fierce prophet, he says, comes this, obedience. John Wesley smirked one time, I'm sure, that love without obedience is barely Christian. Let me say that again. Love without obedience is barely Christian. 
So then he gets to what we are obedient to. What is the task that we are about? And one of the misfortunes is that as he starts this, he talks about justice. And for a long time, he says, one of our tasks is about justice. But for a long time in our history, we have mistakenly separated love of God from love of neighbor. And yet, when you read the scriptures, so often those are tied together. First John would be an example. How can you, James, how can you say you, you love God, but you do not love your neighbor in John? How often does, are those two pieces uh, always held together, this love of God that gets wrapped up in a love of neighbor? Uh, matter of fact, Brueggemann says, love of God gets translated into the love of the vulnerable neighbor in the Old Testament. I can hold tenaciously to truth, but how I live it out with others is as critical as what I think about that truth. There is an urgency to justice, a kind of quiet tenacity, and it has the same urgency and tenacity that we should also feel about evangelism. It's not one or the other. It's this tenacious urgency about bringing justice and bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a, this urgency has always been captured for me in a little clip from a movie called The Great Debaters. It's a story of a, a small black college in Texas uh, and, and a group of students who become part of the debating club it's a true story that ultimately they debate Harvard and they win. But in the midst of their forming, one of the students begins in one of the debates that they're in in a southern state in the United States, begins to talk about justice and about racial injustice. And this is what she does. As long as schools are segregated, Negroes will receive an education that is both separate and unequal. But my opponent says today is not the day for whites and colors to go to the same college, to share the same campus, to walk in the same classroom. Well, would you kindly tell me when is that day going to come? Is it going to come tomorrow? Is it going to come next week? In a hundred years? Never? No, the time for justice, the time for freedom, and the time for equality is always, is always right now. I always get shivers up my back in that part of the movie whenever I watch it. Cornell West says this. Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. And then he goes on, Isaiah, and he says, nor will I, he says in verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Uh, in other words, he will not force himself on anyone. I don't know... Uh, my background is urban missiology, the mission in the city. We used to send students out uh, down onto Young Street, and they would kind of get a feeling for the different kinds of evangelism uh, that would be taking place on Young Street uh, down near college, down near the Eaton Center. 
And in those days, when I was teaching the course, um, there was a guy, an evangelist, and I know he thought he was scoring a, uh, an evangelistic bullseye, uh, but he would stand at the crosswalk. This is before you could do this, you know, and not just that. This was before that, so you, you could avoid him now if he's still there. But he would stand there and he'd wait for the walk sign, and you were captive. Do, do any of you remember him? Michael, you might remember him. And, and you'd walk the, the crosswalk and he'd yell at you. You know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I mean, he'd just go at you all the way. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to discount any attempt on evangelism because I think sometimes we, we, we're, we're too timid. But I would say this, and this with this passage... Uh, there's a sense that we will not be arrogant or aggressive. Servanthood sees the other as to be served. And the truth is that we as Christians have always been most impactful as a Christian movement when we were a minority and we had to be much more subversive. In fact, uh, Eugene Peterson has a great line in one of his books. He calls it subversive spirituality. That when we are most aggressive, when we are, are uh, we tend to go to the more hateful, the more kind of aggressive frameworks that are so common uh, in our world today. Just think of the kinds of placards you've, see, you've seen in the name of Jesus. But in this passage, part of the task of Jesus is neither to be aggressive or arrogant, but not to force himself on, on, on anyone. And then he goes on into verse 3. This is great images. Think about this. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. My friend, the missiologist that did his doctorate on Isaiah says, there's no throwaway people. Isn't that interesting? I mean, think of that image of a bruised reed that he will not break. A smoldering wick that he will not snuff out. Most of my work before education was uh, as an urban pastor. And, and consequently, the, the church was made up of both the beautiful and the not so beautiful, or at least the ones that thought they were beautiful and the ones that knew they or believed they weren't beautiful. And there was this, this profound kind of uh, thing about it in a downtown church when it's alive, is that it just doesn't seem to matter um, our bathrooms were never as good as the suburban church bathrooms. Uh, nursery wasn't as good either. Uh, we had a, a guy in, uh, in the congregation with Tourette syndrome that, pro- that, that scared more people away from coming to church uh, that were church people. They would come to visit ch- the church for the first time, and he would invariably be sitting behind them yelling something out during my sermon, like, Rocketball! It didn't matter what he said, but uh, you could just see these lovely church people thinking, this is not the church for me. One of my colleagues, one day, I, I, I came to the office and I said, what'd you do last night? And he said, I got a call from the police. Alice was picked up. She had another psychotic break. She was in her apartment when we arrived I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, 
We cleaned her up. She'd thrown up all over the floor. Uh, Her bathroom was stained, and we cleaned that as well. We stayed up with her for a while. Then we put her to bed. And then we just slept there that night. He looked at me and he said, nobody told me in seminary that this is what I would be doing in ministry. But there's no throwaway people. The most important act of a Christian university is what you as a student body or a faculty and staff do with the marginal within you. The unlovely or just the people that are different than you. The mark of a Christian university is how you treat each other. Because uh, there are no throwaway people in the kingdom of God. There's a wonderful illustration of this in a movie about Dorothy Day. What are you going to do for shoes? I remember in our neighborhood in Edmonton, which was a trendy little I guess you'd call it a hipster neighborhood today, but it was a trendy little neighborhood that was beginning uh, to re- regentrify. We lived in a row house development, and uh, there was a big open field across the street. We spent years uh, trying to uh, build relationships with our neighbors in these row houses. We used to have block parties, and we had great times. I played guitar, and we'd all bring out our guitars, and we'd sing, and we'd play, and uh, they were great times. They, they always were fascinated that I was a minister, which for them meant that I only worked on a Sunday morning, which was kind of odd. But So a, a Saturday night party tended to be, uh, end a little earlier for me than for them, and they'd, they'd go, oh yeah, you work on Sunday, that's right. Um, all of a sudden, a proposal from the city came to build a, uh, a social housing project across the street from these row houses. And our neighbors were quite incensed by this. And uh, 
So one of them started a, a petition and they came to our, our place and uh, assuming that we would sign. And uh, there's no throwaway people, right? And we, would, we sat with our, our neighbor or he stood with them at the door because he was, he, he was a little mad that we wouldn't sign. And he said, well, your property values will go down. I, guess, I said, well, I guess that, um, that goes along with my view of community, that property values may go down, but my Christian view of community is of a, a broad community of different kinds of people learning to live together. That's what my faith calls me to. He said, well, you just, you don't know what's gonna, what, who's going to be there. And I said, well, we have the same problem here. We don't know who's going to buy one of the townhouses here. Uh, it took us months to, to rebuild relationships with people who, who saw the world in a much different way than, than we did. Yet it was a core value for us. Uh, it's part of the suffering servant of Isaiah. There are no bruised reeds that I will break. Um, there is no smoldering flame that I will snuff out. <coughs> Sorry. The next piece that comes up is in verse 3 as well, where he says, uh, in faithfulness he will bring forth justice, but he will bring light to the nations. He will establish justice on earth and in his lands the islands will put their hope in other words, we will bring something that makes a difference in this world because of the way we live, because of the way we talk, because of the way we approach people. We have a research professor here at Tyndale um, that teaches both at the seminary and the university. His name is Rupin Das. He's a Harvard fellow. Uh, he's a expert, one of the experts on, on emergency relief. He's a fascinating uh, person who's traveled the world. He spent the last 10 years, mostly in the Middle East, he knew more about the, the refugee crisis that was about to come because he was witnessing it in Lebanon as it was beginning. And he spent the last two years, and if you ever get a chance to take one of his classes on compassion to the poor or or some of the other courses that he teaches when he's here in the summer, uh, I really would recommend you, because I think he's doing groundbreaking, well, I know he's doing groundbreaking work, because everybody in this area is telling me that he's doing groundbreaking work. But right now he's in Europe helping churches deal with the refugee crisis as it's come to them, and, and he tells amazing stories of what is happening in the church which in Europe had been in decline. What is happening because of their response to the refugee crisis? Enabling light to shine in the darkness. Opening their doors uh, to people. Uh, the Austrian Baptists, which was a little denomination of about 10 churches, is now 29 churches in the last two years. Uh, most of them are, are new, new converts to Christian faith. Uh, the Swedish uh, Christian church, the free church it's called there, the free church is seeing the same kind of growth 
taking place. And they're seeing the renewal of energy and faithfulness in the life of, of the churches that had been there for years and years and years and just kind of playing at it. What would happen? This is the question I always ask myself. What would happen if we just lived out these implications? I mean, just, just took them seriously. What would happen to this place if we believed very strongly that it's about justice? It's about not forcing ourselves on others. It's about not, not seeing anybody as a throwaway person. It's about shining into the darkness. Later on, Isaiah realizes that this is a tough task, but he says, you will not falter or be discouraged. Isn't that fascinating? In, his, in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. But Isaiah understood and God understands that if you do it on your own, then you will be faltering and you will be discouraged. One of the most depressing conferences I ever spoke at was at a conference of about 700 people, all of them working in the inner city, who had forgotten that God was with them. And they'd for years been doing some of this stuff on their own strength, and they'd lost hope. So isn't it interesting? They will not give up, but then he gives perspective to why they will not give up, and it's verse five to nine. And it's basically this. God will be with you. God will be with you. It's not yours to perform. It's an identity that you nurture, that you live out of. Isn't it fascinating that Paul over and over says, in Christ? Because in Christ, then I can do things. That's why... Warren calls it, it's not about you. And that's why I call you this semester to think seriously about what you're being called to and nurture the faith and the God who will help you live that out. Have a great new semester. Amen. Go with God.